I am Doug Friedman. And I am Meredith Levy. And this is Your Mental Breakdown. The podcast. Here we are. It's been so long. We are back. We are back. It has. It's been very long. Do you know how long it's been since we were live on the podcast? Live? Since we were here on the podcast. How long, Dougie? It's been nearly six months. That's cr- nearly fucking six crazy. months, right? And I, I would still say feel I like I'm you. in COVID. Oh, I mean, well, we are still in COVID. I know. You know what I mean, though. It's just not the same, nor will it ever be. But pros and no. cons. Although, you know, it's funny because we say that and we used to do this live in person all the time, like sitting next to each other I or know. across from each other, gazing into each other's eyes. And Lovingly. We, <laughs> we now gaze at our screens the entire time. That's our new normal. Like we don't want to drive the 45 minutes to each other's houses. So we just do it this way all the time. Yeah. hundred percent. I mean, that's the beauty of what the pandemic taught us is that we can do things virtually and have it be okay, which made a lot of people's right. lives easier and life could continue also made us very detached in a lot of ways. So we are reattaching and we are here to make your lives easier uh, for the next hour, if we can, and that's sort of what we do. Well, I know. Do you guys even do remember do? us or what do, what we do? <laughs> we are psychotherapists, licensed nonetheless. That's but right. Not yours. But we play therapist on TV. Actually, no, we're real therapists, and you will hear a real session with a real client of mine. And then Mayor and I will be back to break down what I was doing, what I didn't do, what I could have done what maybe I'll do next time and how you can make your life better by doing everything we tell you to. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah. And oh, we can also tell you to buy our merch from our merch store at yourmentalbreakdown.com to rate us and review us wherever you listen to podcasts that really helps us out. Should we also uh, tell them about the thing I just started doing or no? Oh yes, absolutely. If you are curious, because you only hear us as voices, you can actually see Meredith Levy on video, in the flesh. On a podcast that I am a guest on monthly called Revealing Your Secrets with the lovely Alex Weiss. Indeed. And you'll just have to check it out, Revealing Your Secrets. It's a podcast on... Apple and stuff, <laughs> all the places where you can hear them. And, well, and the videos on YouTube, right? You can watch it on YouTube. Alex is a YouTuber for many, many years. How do they find it? Revealing your secrets? Yes. Revealing yeah. your secrets. So she does it week to week, every week she does it. Right. And you're on there like once a month as the therapist, right? Yeah. And it is not rated PG. No. Well, right. I was going to say neither are we, but that's just really for language, not topic. What the fudge? I think I've toned down my swearing. You know what it is? I just don't have the energy anymore. You don't have the energy to swear? I don't know. It's like swearing is for emphasis, you know, not intentionally. I'm not intentionally making an effort to swear, although I can tame it, like if I'm around kids or whatever. But side note, this can be cut. But do you ever leave the country? The country? Sure. Oh, okay. Haven't in a while. Speaking of international travel, we're going to hear about Sarah's 
That's right. That's right. Yeah, you yeah. get some international traffic. This was cool. I, I like this because we haven't heard from Sarah in a long time. We've been doing this a little bit on patreon.com. So if you guys are still interested in hearing Drew, our client from the first season, he's got his regular sessions and our breakdowns on Patreon. Go check him out over there. And Sarah, this was like a nice refresher because if you don't know her or you don't remember her, she kind of gave a little history of where she came from growing up in a cult and coming out of it and, and how that happened a little bit. And that was cool. And we, I'll tell you guys, some of what we cut right in the very beginning might have been even before we hit record was she was asking me how I can do this work every day and not take <laughs> on everybody's problems. <laughs> like That's kind of the million dollar question for, for all of us therapists. And what she was really getting at was she doesn't know how she could do this without taking everybody's problems on as her own. Right. Well, yeah, that's why you're not a therapist. And even some of us therapists don't know how to do this without taking it on as our own. Yeah, that's I'm pretty why... much one of them, but... <laughs> right? I think all good Only therapists sometimes. see therapists. Uh-huh. Gotta get back on do. that. Gotta right? get back on that. Yep, 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 right? yep, yep. So you guys will hear Sarah talking about how she cannot take on everyone's problems as her own. <laughs> But she'll give you a little history of what she's been through, and we will get back into it with you guys after the session. Bye. Bye. You don't make other people's problems your problems. I do. Which <laughs> is the worst possible thing. Yeah. Well, I used to, and then I learned not to. So it's something we have to learn. And I, I think that that is something, you know, being empathic and being somebody that feels that you kind of got Sarah, the sensitive one. Yeah. Okay. I can still have that and not take on everybody's stuff. You've talked about, and this fits with taking care of everybody else. I don't really know how it went, but when you left the cult, you got out at 15, got out, kind of yep. went to Italy and played music and, and did that. Started a band. Yep. Exactly. There's a big gap and you always talk about getting my, my <laughs> siblings out and taking care of them and making sure they're okay. Yep. How did you go from 15 and I'm out, I'm in a band, I'm just taking care of myself, reading voraciously to I can take care of my, my siblings, I can help them out, I can get them out? So we went to Italy, two guys who had previously been friends or were still friends from childhood with my boyfriend at the time. Okay. Their whole family is very musical. They were actually a family like mariachi band oh, wow. for many, many years. It was actually quite cute, you know, cause it's a family thing. Their family on the other hand, not cute at oh, all. Wow. One of the most stressful, I think house situations I've ever been in. So my first boyfriend that I did all this stuff with, right? I was with him until forever, until I was 20 something and moved to the States. Right. So we go to Italy. We'll just start booking restaurants and we'll just be a band. So we went down there, you know, I don't know, maybe a week of practice. And then we just started singing in restaurants in the evening. So that went on for about a year and a half. And I had no zero contact with my family during this time. Zero, not even my brothers and sisters. This was before email. This was before cell phones. Sure. If I wanted to call, I had to go to a pay phone and 
It's a whole thing. Plus, I didn't even really, I didn't have anything to offer or say or do. You know, at that point, it was just really me having left them. The idea that I hurt them in any way was kind of hard for me. So no contact. Tell tell me about that. I I don't want to just pass over that. My little brothers and sisters, you know, I never really gave them an explanation. I didn't tell them where I was going. I didn't tell them why. I didn't want to cause them even more pain in the sense that I didn't know if any of them had already come to grips or to the realization with what was going on in our lives, Mm. in the cults. And it was so extreme, especially with young kids. So you're still very, very young thinking about it. But I was 15. What the fuck did I know, really? And I knew enough to know that I didn't have a fucking clue what what was going on. I just knew I couldn't survive. I couldn't do that anymore. But I had no guidance. I had no, like, encouraging words or anything to tell them. At the time, did you even have a sense of, I can talk about this with anybody in my family? No. Right. So you couldn't have given any of your siblings any words of encouragement because it was it was not safe. You give them a yeah. word of encouragement. Next thing you know, you're locked in a shed for, for a few days. Well, exactly. Yeah. And if And if I had been punished as harshly as I was, I couldn't even imagine what would happen to someone like sister because she was already on the radar. She was always being severely punished. All of my younger brothers and sisters have massive amounts of physical and like emotional abuse, Mm -hmm. massive trauma in that area. Sister was especially bad because she's a, you don't like what I'm doing? Well, fuck you. I'm going to do it even worse. (laughs) That's her attitude. And of course, everything I said and did, she looked up to me. I mean, I was at the time her very much older sister and I couldn't make her or put her in even a more precarious position than she already was. I didn't even know if I was going to survive outside of this cult. It was literally like, we're going to a little beach town in Italy to sing in restaurants. And it was, that was what I was doing at that point. Right. This was of course my vision and way I thought in my mind out. Sure. But at the time, all I was doing was my day to day. Okay. We're here. We're on the beach. We're getting ready. We're going and singing. We're getting some money. We're coming back. I just had nothing to convey (laughs) to my younger brothers and sisters that I didn't, that I, I just thought everything I would say would confuse them or get them into trouble or make them even more unhappy. So didn't speak to them at all Mm -hmm. for about three years. So when I was 17, I found out that they had moved to Italy, up north Mm. in Italy, and we were down south. And then meaning your family or the whole cult? Well, the cult was everywhere, yeah. So my family had moved to a home, they call them. In the cult, there's another thing you should know. You were not allowed to live alone with just your family. Hmm. If you did that you were on the outside. So you would, so there was different tiers, right? There was 
being a member, which was like actually inside of like the inner circle, which we were because my parents were leaders. Then there was people on the outside. I can't remember all the weird acronyms they had for them, but it was essentially people who were tithing to the the cults, like giving the cult money, but didn't necessarily want to live with a big group of people or didn't want to follow all the rules a hundred percent or got kicked out and told they had to live because they weren't following all the rules. 100%. If that happened to you, it was a big deal. If you were trying to stay in the Mm. cult, if you were in this outside circle. So wherever you moved, wherever any family moved and they would break up families all the time because they love doing that shit too. They don't like to keep people together who love each other or who care about each other. So they were very, very, very much about splitting up families, even splitting up husbands and wives and having them marry different people. Mm. Which I, in, in the cult, there's so many, many, many kids that are half of their family is from one dad and half is from the other or mom two different moms. Like it's crazy stuff. So all that to say, my parents moved to a home, meaning there was like two or three other families there to make people follow the rules and follow what you had to do otherwise. And getting kicked out was a bad thing. Oh yeah. They called it being excommunicated. So that was around the same time that my mom found out where I was Wow! <laughs> because she, up until this point, she had no idea. So it had been, I would say uh, the better part of two and a half years hmm. that I had no contact. My mom didn't even know where I was. So from 15 to 17, I was just not around and my mom just carried on living her life. And those are pretty formative teenage years, 15 to 17. Oh yeah. We were having fun. You know, we were, we were just goofing off and playing on the beach all day and making money at night. So it was really like the best life at the time. How do you not wind up like Mm -hmm. doing drugs? That's when I have my first cigarette, which was just the worst thing I've ever done in my life, which is saying a lot because I loved it. I loved my first cigarette. Everybody else hated it. (laughs) I was like, Oh my God, this is amazing. Unfortunately, (laughs) there's a sort of scary or, or worrying part of America's very strict 21 year old policy for even for drinking. And I know this drinking and drugs are not the same, but in, but in Europe, any, anything like that, anything curricular like that is not restricted. Like it's not taboo. It's all there. And don't get me wrong. I did some drugs, but it was never like, Ooh, I need to do those all the time. Like that was the most amazing thing ever. It was just like, Oh, and we were having a party. And so that was there. There's a part of me that I think even from a young age realized, I think it was once I had a cigarette realized that I could possibly have an addiction Mm. (laughs) issue at one point. And this is skipping forward, but I'm just going to say really quick. I had to have all four of my wisdom teeth removed. And then when I woke up, they sent me home with oxy, oxycontin. Like, I didn't even know what that was at the time. I think I was maybe 20, 20 something. 
And I get home and I take one and it felt so good. I instantly took the whole bottle and flushed it down the toilet. Really? Because I, I got so scared, like instantly freaked me out. And I just flushed them all down the toilet and I didn't take another one ever in my whole life. Wow. So interesting. (laughs) Who knows? For you, that mechanism of it felt so good. So I flushed them down the toilet. (laughs) Almost knowing, oh, it feels too good. I will become addicted to this. When you say like, how come, how come I didn't, you know, wind up this way? And and some of my siblings did. And a lot of the people that were in the call with me did that right there. Maybe there's a reason right there. It felt so good. So I flushed them down the toilet. Not, it felt so good. So I need to keep doing this. Yeah. And there's something about that where, I don't know, I'm going to think out loud here. So help, help me think. Yeah. Help me too. Cause I have no answers <laughs> well, we're, for we're, these things. We're inside like, your mind right now. So we're both thinking, thinking yeah. as you for a minute, yeah. you know, we're just kind of playing with this and seeing what this means. And it's, wow, this feels good. Wait, I'm not allowed to feel good. It's not okay to feel good. Maybe feeling good meant, ah, nothing's under control. And that feels great. Dropping the ball. <laughs> right. And if I drop the ball and I'm not holding it, like, uh Oh, so I might, it might not be safe. And, and I don't know, again, we're thinking out loud here. So, yeah. Yeah. And I've, and I've gone through that in my mind as well, when it comes to that kind of thing, because, you know, all my brothers, younger brothers and sisters got heavy into drugs. I mean, heavy right. into drugs in their early teens. I mean, they call it tripping balls their whole lives sure. because they just didn't want to, to deal with their actual life. I understand what they were doing and why they did it. Sure. But, and I'm saying, but, and I know you're going to correct me on that. (laughs) The part of me, yeah. The part of me that I think never gave myself that permission Uh to drop the ball or to be like, it's okay if I don't pay my rent, if I spend all the money on acid or heroin or whatever, because someone will pay it for me or my sister will bail us out or whatever the case might be. Right. Mm. I mean, we're not at the Viking funeral yet by a long shot, <laughs> not yet. but that t-shirt mm-hmm. and the, the idea that Sarah handle it. Right. Yep. It's something that I can't drop the ball. I can't let go because if I don't, who's going to handle it? Cause someone has to, and maybe you had an yeah. awareness that the people handling it, we're pretty fucked up. So I don't trust anybody to handle it and fuck it up. I feel like that has to be the closest explanation. That feeling in my stomach. I don't actually know any better, but something's telling me I I can't do that. Or I, you know, if I do that, disaster for for somebody. That's programming that you and I, in the context of this story and where you are at 15 or 17, whenever it was. You know, what we're talking about is it's not okay to let go because Mm -hmm. I don't trust anybody else to handle it. So I have to stay sharp and handle it. Like I I would think that if anything, your drug of choice would have been coffee. Oh, oh, absolutely. And in fact, I got super addicted to Red Bulls, mm-hmm. Monsters. I'll drink tea. I, I like caffeine. I like the feeling, you know, because I'm always tired. Like I've told you, I, I don't sleep. I work all the time. 
I'm always tired. So absolutely. Well, and that that's right there. I love coffee. I'm always tired. Right. And yet I won't let myself feel it. So I will take a stimulant to keep going, to keep yep. a handle on everything. And then you have to keep drinking it all day because otherwise it's like. Absolutely. Oh. You needed to stay sharp and stay focused and stay diligent. It's true. And I, and I, in fact, I tried speed when I started my first proper job right? and I hated it. I went to a doctor actually, because I told you I have like extreme ADHD. Mm-hmm. So in fact, they put me on Ritalin, right. which actually calmed me down right? compared to my usual, like, so that calmed me down. And then I just drank tons and tons of caffeine right. all day from, right. you know, five in the morning till five in the evening. Yep. It tracks. It helps you stay focused on something. There's a, a history and a lot of imprinting of, I need to have the handle on it because no one else that I trust will. Yep. So I can never drop the ball and I can't keep the ball going with my mind, not completely present and focused. So if, if, if there's going to be a stimulant that has me like, yeah, I, I can, I can hold the ball. That's great, but I'm not sharp. I won't do it. Yeah. None of that. Right. <laughs> no. The idea of even meditating and relaxing and getting into that state, like I, I would never tell you to meditate. It's not safe right now. And <laughs> I will say you allowing boyfriend to drive mm-hmm. you somewhere, you allowing him to yep. take over and do something. Those are great examples of somebody else can handle it. Cool. Yeah. I can let go. Wish you guys had a pool because it's, it's, there's something wonderful about being able to lie in a pool on your back with somebody and just their fingers underneath you yep. can, can support you entirely. And then they can kind of move you around the pool anywhere. Like having that experience and letting somebody else do that would be actually very reparative. It could be very scary and it would be reprocessing your brain and allowing yourself to let somebody or something else handle it, take control while you let go. Yeah. But that has for you almost never been safe. Correct. To the point of as a teenager, I can take a drug that gives me relief and feels great, but nope, it's not safe. Yep. So at around 17, I find out my family's there, my mom's there. So we tell the other two guys in our band, okay, let's take a mm. a month break. Boyfriend and I went to visit my family and the two of them went to Switzerland to go rock climbing. Hmm. The younger brother fell and died during that little like two month break. It was actually my first I'd experienced death. Someone I didn't know. I I think I told you a story when I was supposed to sing at the funeral and I couldn't stop laughing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because it was so sad. I had a therapist once who told me that's also a trauma response. You, you're, you have so much emotion that it just comes out in whatever way it comes out, whether it's nervous energy or laughing or, or whatever it is. This mm-hmm. time, we had actually all become really good friends. You know, it had been two years that we were together all day, every day, all the time. So that was obviously shocking, 
we were all so young too. It wasn't even like, oh yeah, you know, my 40 year old friends and I, we were a couple of 16 and 17 year olds. And then he just died. Like it it was the weirdest thing. So I had a, I had a, a week or so with my family. My mom was like, oh, where have you been? Okay. Well, we, we got yeah. <laughs> two things, two big things we got to cover. One is not being there while that happens. So th- there's that bit. Then there's the bit where you are with family. Are they okay with you not being a part of the family anymore? I mean, this is the first time you're seeing them. It's, and you're not in the cult yet. They are. My mom didn't know where I was for almost three years. And she just kept reporting on her monthly tithe report. They had to do these really long, extensive reports, right? That I was there. She she was counting me as a member of the household and tithing on my behalf because it was like a percentage per person. Hmm. And so I I was like, mom, I've literally left this fucking cult like three years ago. Like, how do you not know that? Well, I wasn't really sure, you know, so I just, I thought I would just keep in just in case you wanted to come back. <laughs> like, Oh my God. Mm-hmm. So of course that's when I told my mom straight up, I was like, yeah, that's never going to happen. So go ahead and remove me from all of your reports. Now I'm too, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm too old for them to, lock me up and put me in some shed because I know better. So that happened. Mom cried a bit and she was a little, you know, I think in denial. And she just kept saying, well, you know, just always know you can come back and we're going to be here. And I was like, yeah, okay, thanks, mom. I'm still stuck on this a little bit because it seems like you see mom, you see siblings. And wow, there wasn't a sense of, we found you. Now we're going to punish you. Now we're going to get you. Now, now we're going to pull you back in and make you pay for leaving. Like, it seems like it was relatively okay, except maybe you got to see your siblings and firsthand experience the guilt that they're still there and you're out. So walk me through that, that piece. Yeah. So the circumstance of the, of the place also makes a lot of difference. So when I was 13 Hmm. and I told them I wanted to leave, we were living in a place where it was all leaders. Like the address was a secret. We weren't allowed to call anybody from the landlines. We weren't allowed to send mail with a actual return address on it. Like this is where we actually, as children spent a lot of our times in, in places like this communes, homes, whatever you want to call them, because of the fact that a lot of these leaders were, there were people, you know, government people and child protective services looking for them for many, many years. In in fact, the Mm -hmm. leader of the cult was like on the FBI's top 10 most wanted at one point because of the child abuse and nobody could find him. So this is one of the reasons nobody could ever find these guys is because of situations like that. So when I broke the news that I didn't want to be in this cult, I was in that setting right. now. And I was 13. Now I come back. I mean, in my mind, I'm a grown ass woman. <laughs> of course, if I saw myself <laughs> now, I'd be like, hmm. right. I mean, I was 17. I had money. I don't know. I didn't have the same doubt or the same questions. Like, am I even going to survive? Like what's even out there? Mm. So I think 
the circumstance of that home itself, which was much more laid back, not, you know, it was only my parents that were there that were quote unquote leaders. Like everybody else was just, you know, people doing life. So there was also less trepidation, I think, from my parents' side Hmm. of, oh my God, we have to lock her down quick isolate her from everybody so she can't spread it and she can't make other people think about leaving. I I didn't care either at the time, at this point when I'm 17, I didn't actually care what was, what they were going to say or how they were going to feel about it. You had some independence. You were no longer dependent on them. There's something you said to me a few months ago, like, they want you to have a lot of kids. My mom had 10 kids. Yep. So when you have 10 kids and they're being raised by everybody, where are you going to go? Exactly. What are you going to do? And you're not exactly. educated beyond like a fifth grade level. So what can you do? Exactly. Well, you didn't have 10 kids. You yep. were educating yourself. Mm-hmm. You no longer had that dependence. Yep. That's exactly right. So I think my main, my main focus during that time was just to check in with my brothers and sisters, just to see like how, how they were doing. And again, circumstantially, they had been removed from an extreme place. When you live in a cult, in a secret compound with a bunch of leaders who are just crackers, right? They're just literally all insane. And then they just feed each other's insanity. It's the sexual, it's the mental, it's the physical, and it's just compounded by the fact that there are so many of them in one goddamn place and who suffers the ones who are helpless. Now they are no longer being that fully abused. You know, it's not a constant thing anymore. It's, it's a house of, I mean, I would say maybe 50 people. Whereas we had come from 250, 300 people in massive compounds with massive rules and massive abuse. So again, my brothers and sisters were actually quite okay. Sure. They were better off now than when you had left and when you were last there. Yeah. So maybe that sense of urgency that you felt at 15, wasn't there now at 17 or 18. Yes, that's, you pretty much summed it right up. So there was still a sense in my mind that I got to get them out before it's too late. I feel like there's a part of you when you're ritualistically abused, when you get to a point where you just accept it, like it's normal, like it, it stops being painful and it stops being emotional. It is what it, it, it is. It's almost like that's how it's supposed to be. And I, I was starting to see these kind of signs in my younger mm. brothers and sisters. And that terrified me a lot, making excuses for people who had abused them as children. Oh, but they were actually so sweet. You know, they were doing their best, that kind of crap. And that was a alarm bell for me, for sure. However, at that moment, in that place in time, they were not being physically harmed. This was a much different environment than where we had all come from. Right. So yeah, as as we said, that urgency wasn't there, but you're seeing something, especially in the younger ones, 
where you're seeing the programming. I don't know that it's necessarily acceptance or allowance. It's just surrender. And yeah. you, you don't fight it as much. You're Maybe you're, to some degree, you're numb to it. You know, you told me, I think it was one of your older brothers actually started working up in the cult and, yep. and kind of just took it on as well. Here's yep. how I'm going to survive. I'm going to thrive within the context of this place. So he was away and not even there. He was in another place, another service home, right. working his way up the ladder. So this was my younger sister and down. My, all my gotcha. older brothers and sisters were, were having babies. So they had a bunch of little kids. Mm. My parents at the time were talking about settling somewhere in Italy. Then we find out they died. Boyfriend, can I have to make a decision? We're like, okay, what are we going to do? That sort of chapter of our life was kind of done as far as, as we knew it. We all just felt like it was the end of that chapter. Yeah. So boyfriend is half British and half Italian. And he Mm. was actually, his family was actually one of those families that was on the outer circle you know, they had actually been allowed to go to school. So he had a bit more outside influences, which was great for me too, because I think it helped, helped me along. Sometimes he had a clue, not always, but definitely more than me. (laughs) And he wanted to go back to school. Like he wanted to go to university. So we decided to move to England where he could go to university for free. Problem number one, I'm American. Even though I've never stepped foot in the US, I hold an American passport, which means I cannot work, legally work anywhere except in the US. We moved to this teeny tiny little town outside of London, like, and there's a little bar there. So we go, well, let's just have a beer and and think about what we're gonna do. And I just walked up to the owner of the bar. And I was like, Hey, so I'm American. So you can't actually hire me, but do you want to hire me? (laughs) And so he was like, sure. (laughs) Why not start tomorrow? Doug, I was the world's worst bartender, I think probably ever, but the best, the best salesman to walk up to somebody (laughs) in a bar and just go, Hey, you want to hire me? I know I I surprised myself with that too, I think, but I was again in such a panic because I didn't have a a Mm. plan. We were just there. So desperation, not confidence. Maybe. I mean, it had to be, I think, because I don't have that kind of confidence normally. I think it was more ignorance that made me confident because I didn't know a no was possible. Like, I'm like, I'm cute. I can, I can do this. You, you obviously want to hire me. I mean, right. duh. <laughs> right. I don't know. Right. But he said, yes. Next day I showed up for work. Worst bartender in the world. I didn't know British money. Never been there. Second day in London. So no idea. I didn't know how to give people change. Like they would give me five pounds. I'd give them back like 10. Like just <laughs> no idea what I was doing. I had never drunk alcohol, alcohol, like, like spirits. And I was dropping things all the time and making the wrong drinks. It was a disaster, but I don't know. They kept you. The guy didn't care. Yeah. He loved it. I think because I was, 
I'm just kind of fudging my way through life, you know, like (laughs) I had no idea what I was doing. So I think that there was a sense people hated me a little less, I think, because (laughs) it it was coming from a place of, of, I was, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a nice person. So I don't think they could hate me as much as they wanted to, but. What I hear is you were not necessarily making excuses or trying to be anything you weren't. You were just embracing who and how you were. You were, <laughs> you were pretty honest. Well, uh, unfortunately for your job performance, maybe, but fortunately for the development of you, because we're still, we're still teenage. Yes. Right. We are. You did it and you did it as you. Right. You were doing mm-hmm. it dropping drinks, not getting the right stick, giving the wrong change. Like, oops, sorry about that. And like, and there's something I think wonderful about that, that we can tap into because it's, is it ignorance, desperation or confidence? Maybe a little bit of all those things (laughs) before you were stopping yourself and filtering yourself and, and beating yourself up, you were just doing it. Yeah. I, I think that's, that's pretty huge. I look back at that time, actually, and I liked where I was mentally. And like you said, like, honestly, this is the first time I've, I've talked about this from a psychological standpoint. But, you know, I always I laugh at myself and who I was at that time just because of how ridiculous I was now that I'm older and wiser. But I like who I was in the sense that I was just living my life and just yeah figuring it out forest gumping my way through life it's, it's awesome <laughs> like he seeing you and hearing you smile and recount this there's something really yep. cool about this that i, that I really want to i want to highlight okay. which is what you were doing then you were not doing very well you were learning a lot you were very free mm-hmm. and allowing yourself to make mistakes and it was okay and as you were telling me and smiling, like, man, what, what, what a free time in your life mm-hmm. to be doing all of that. I mean, you had stress and pressure, sure, but the way you were approaching this was very different. And at the heart of it, like I said, is that authenticity that you had, just being yourself and allowing yourself to be yourself and a self that very much needed improvement at that job. <laughs> you weren't doing it very well. I was that, not. I was terrible. Right. And I, I purposefully use those words because you probably didn't even acknowledge it in that way. But fast forward to getting an annual review and the worst thing that you could possibly hear needs improvement. I know. That was my only job, my one and only job I've ever had that did not have consequences. But at this bar, in this particular job with that particular guy and that particular group of regulars, there was no consequence. There was, there was Mm. laughs and big tips. (laughs) That was it. I love that because there's something I can touch it. Now you won't be able to touch it. You will eventually. There's still no consequence, but what there is, is fear. Yeah. I can't lose this job. I can't get a bad review. I can't need improvement. I need to be, I need to be indispensable. Yep. Right. You were very expendable at that job. (laughs) 
you were the opposite of irreplaceable. Yeah, but, like end of day one, they should have known. Right, <laughs> right. But they didn't. And part of that was, I'm just myself. I'm doing my thing. I have no fear. There is no consequence. There's something about this that, again, we can tap into and we can touch. Right now, the consequence for losing your job or getting a review that needs improvement or somebody talking about you is severe. Right. <laughs> right. Yes. Right? No, meets expectations. But, That's severe. <laughs> right. <laughs> There's something wonderful about feeling no consequence. And there might always be consequences, but consequences that you're okay with. Okay. So someone says you meet expectations. Okay. Someone says you need improvement. Okay. No, right doubt. now it's not no. right. I know. Right. <laughs> na- right now it's not back then it was. And I know therefore you have that somewhere in your brain. I will say the through line and the core is authentic about you. You were, you were real. You weren't pretending. I mean, even though you sold yourself to them, <laughs> you were clearly American. You clearly didn't know the money. You clearly didn't know the drinks. And that was okay. Yep. That teenager's still somewhere in there. I know. And balancing kind of that mentality with needing to take care of everybody, needing to take care of my family, needing, you know, all of that stuff. There's, there's a little bit of both, you know, and I would say, while you were in that bar working and doing that, that was you living your best life. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> At that time, yep. that was you living your life and, mm-hmm. and taking no shit and giving no fucks. Yeah. Right. Now you take a hell of a lot of shit and you give a lot of fucks. <laughs> yep. So well, this is we'll good. Balance well, that. Yeah, we'll balance we that. Yeah, but I, that was a fun little uh a fun little trip for me to that time of my life. Yeah. And that, that, and there's the smile again. <laughs> yeah. Hold on to that. Cause that, that girl, she's still there. We've talked about little Sarah <laughs> and how she didn't really get a childhood. We've talked about mama bear. This is kind of like teenage Sarah. that got to have some fun. Yeah. Feel it, feel it for a while. Allow yourself that. This is sort of like floating in the pool weightless for a moment feeling what that felt like to be that yep yeah keep that around for a minute if you can and we're back yeah it was so fun to catch up and hear sarah it's been so long i know i mean for you for me i see her every week but yes Uh, yeah 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 there was a lot of like little things that i think we knew that were expanded upon that she talked right. about. And right. I loved, she was like, well, you don't make other people's problems your own. I do. <laughs> right. But right. Again, you said, well, I used to, like I learned not to. That was a natural segue. I didn't realize we were going to go deep into it, but something yeah. that, that you and I have been talking about, about Sarah for a long time is she got out of the cult at 15 years. Yeah. And she's always talked about wanting to take care of her siblings and wanting to do that. And like, Huh. Yeah. There, there's a little gap there about her being a teenager and she's not taking care of her siblings at 15. You kind of were asking, well, what did she do? How did she get yeah. in contact with them? What was going on? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It was really interesting. At 13 is when she told her mom she wanted to leave the cult. And then she just peaced out at 15. And then she came back around at 17 and talked to her parents and saw them. But 
15 years old, I mean, although I was a crazy kid, I was also, I couldn't have survived on my own for a minute, much less she just literally went to Italy. Where was she? They were in Europe. And that that was the thing. A couple of things I didn't realize, like she'd never really lived in America. Yeah. I think she said she'd never been there, even though she was American, right? Right. Until this point, which also is interesting. She had a boyfriend and they left. And I'm trying to picture how you're allowed to have a boyfriend in the cult. But I know she said he was sort of more outer circle. And she had explained what that meant at some point. Um, and it's also like it wasn't like, hey, they're boyfriend and girlfriend and she's wearing his varsity you know, jacket and they're <laughs> right. going to prom together. They were pretty well insulated in the cult. Like, yeah, she doesn't know pop culture. They didn't really get to see a lot of that stuff and get exposed to that. So I'm sure it was just kept under wraps, but yeah. people always find a way and I'm sure they found a way, but finding their way out of the cult was pretty gnarly, I think. And she just kind of has described it in the past of, yeah, we just kind of left and walked out and got on a train and, yeah. and went to Italy. Like They didn't stop you? And it was super surprising to me, and I guess it makes sense, that her mom kept records showing that she was still there. Yeah, the tithing or whatever, saying, oh, just in case you came back. I would guess that her mom would have to answer for why her kid or one of her kids left. Yeah. Right? Because I always wondered, how did they not try to track you down? And it was a combination of the mom never let it out that she was missing or gone. And the cult members in that inner circle were on the run anyway. Like they were in hiding the whole time. Well, and there was like no technology back then. So it would be really hard compared to now. Yeah, they weren't leaving on horse and buggy. No. (laughs) Right. And then, of course, crazy, it ends up that her family then also ends up in Italy. So the whole thing is so intense. Her saying... But I couldn't work. I didn't have papers. I couldn't work. And, you know, she's 15 to 17 and a little older. She had freedom that she never had before. So it was great. I think she even said, like, it was it was the greatest time in my life. I was just out there. I was in a band. We were playing these shows and I was bartending. I was a horrible bartender. But yeah, it was it was cool. It made me laugh because I was a bartender in Europe also for like a year when I lived there. And right. also a horrible bartender. Interesting. But yeah, so I I think the sad thing was, I don't know, sad, the right word, but she didn't talk to her siblings for a few years years because, A, because I don't know that there was necessarily a way to, and B, she was, what she described was that she was very present and engaged in what she was doing. She was sort of talking about being like in the day to day, like I had nothing to give them. I had no explanation. I had no advice or which... I get, of course, like you were a kid still. She didn't have any words of encouragement. Like you said, like, oh, everything's going to be okay. And then you're locked in the shed. Yeah. And that's kind of the Meredith method of seeing the trees in front of you, not the whole forest. Right. I think for her, a line I really liked was she said, I knew enough that I needed to get out of there, but I didn't know how to care for my siblings. Mm -hmm. And she was, I mean, I think she did a pretty good job at caring for herself. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And at 15, 16, 17 years old, you're not supposed to see the bigger picture or the wider lens. You're supposed to just see the trees in front of you. That's what that time's about. Yeah. Having a lot of fun, trying things out. Uh, we talked about this, Mara, the, how the Amish have that uh, rumspringa, the, the period where they go out 
away from Amish town and they can just go buck wild or do whatever they want. And most of them then come back. I don't think Sarah was ever going to come back to the cult, even though her mom was like, well, I'm holding your place in case you ever want to come back. She also talked about having that first cigarette and how she loved it and that addiction piece, because all of her siblings have some sort of addiction, I think. Some form, some form. Yeah. And a lot of people coming out of the cult that she was friends with have OD'd or suicide. Can't even imagine. Yeah. But, you know, my first thought when she was like, oh, my God, it felt so good. So like, bye bye, like flushed him down the toilet when she was talking about the oxys. And then I was like, oh, well well, kind of a blessing and a curse, like it's kind of sad. And then you had started talking about how, so it's not okay to feel good, which is so sad. Yeah. It's not okay for her to lose control because she can't trust anybody. So it's kind of that thing where, oh, who's going to be the designated driver? Who's going to be the babysitter while everyone takes mushrooms? Like she didn't feel like she could have that experience. Part of what I love about some therapy sessions like this one where the client's just retelling a story, is you hear pieces of, oh, this is the imprinting. This is sort of their narrative. And they don't think of it that way because they're just telling you a story, but we're listening to it that way. So reflecting back to her, oh, right, it's not okay to let go because you don't trust anybody to handle it. So you have to stay sharp. You have to handle it. And that's when I even said to her, so taking those kinds of drugs that help you relax wasn't your thing. Your thing was probably going to be coffee. She's like, oh my God, yes, right? Well, yeah, and the nicotine, of course. That's what I was right. thinking. Like, I'm pretty right. sure she's vaping as we're talking right now. <laughs> exactly. I need to keep going, I need to keep going, yet I also need to relax. But I have to relax and stay in control. Right. Right, and those are big issues for her. Big issues for a lot of us. It's also a defense mechanism that protected her that she had to handle it all the time and she could never drop the ball. And that's a very stressful way of living. And I've said it to her before, that's, that's the trauma response where you're in that hypervigilant state all the time. Do you remember, I think maybe first or second session with her, when I said the worst thing I could do is tell you to meditate? Yeah, it's funny. You said that you were like, it's dangerous right now. And I was like, okay. Right? No. I don't know if I told you to meditate for 20 seconds, would it be dangerous? Meh, I don't know. Right. And, and here's the thing. I love that you picked that up because I don't give advice. I don't tell her what to do. That's not my role as the therapist, right? So me saying something like, oh yeah, it would be a dangerous thing to tell you to meditate right now. I'm saying it that way for impact. So she will kind of take it as, well, I don't think it's that dangerous. I just, you know, uh -huh. I, I don't know if I'm ready yet. So I'm introducing it in a way. And I can tell you in real life, real time right now, even though you guys are all hearing this where we are, we're at least six months in the future, and she's not meditating right now, but she has said, I can see how I could meditate at some point in the future. It's no longer that thing that she's afraid of. And in this session, you heard her saying, no, I can't do those drugs. I can't let go. I can't right. let someone else handle it. I need to drink coffee, stay hypervigilant all the time. Yeah. So she's starting to see how she can relax her mind, ease into it. So me yeah. saying that, oh, that'd be dangerous for you, is me, in a sense, saying, wow, you have built this schema and this narrative a certain way, right. and we need to rebuild it, but we're going to have to tear the old one down. That's scary to do. Yeah, no, totally. And that makes sense. And by the way, at some point, she <laughs> was talking about 
the difference of now that her siblings were living in this smaller compound where your family can't be just your family. At some point, she just said how they weren't with all the leaders anymore. And she was like, with all those fucking crackers or something. And I laughed so hard when she called them. <laughs> they're just all, they're all crackers. Are you kidding me? They're all just, yeah. Crazy crackers. I thought it was funny because when she starts talking loosely about the past and the cult, she gets into this very non-Sarah dialect. She becomes less pronounced. She just gets in a casual flow and she's like, fuck them. And they're blah, blah, blah. You know, she sort of gets into that vibe. And so she threw that out there. I love that. And then she said, comma, they're all just insane or something or, but yeah, I just actually, as I said, that realized that she gets into that very different speech pattern enunciation. There's a couple different ones that I've noticed with her. You just mentioned the one where she's over-enunciating, and we've talked about that one, and she's now aware of that. She's done great with that. There is the one where she's a little looser, like you just said, especially when it's not just being humorous as a defense mechanism. She's just saying it, just letting it fly, like not filtering herself so much, which is great. Then there's another one where she's really pissed. I think there is a lot of anger there. You're right. There, There is a difference in her speech, in the intonation. And in in the words she uses. Absolutely. She gets both of those ways, I think, when I've heard her talk about her ex-husband also. She'll slip into that. Absolutely. It's nice to hear the difference because it's, I think, a lot about control and a lot about trauma response. (laughs) There was a few things she said, you know, when she was talking about being the world's worst bartender, but... She talked about like fudging her way through life and that people hated her a little bit less because she was nice and meant well. And she then she talked about force gumping her way through it. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> I love yep. that. Yeah. Just the general vibe of just doing, just trying hard and doing it and just acting as if. And maybe she was horrible, but she was nice and authentic and people were sort of okay with that. I love that she used Forrest Gumping that way because that's, to me, Forrest Gump just stumbled upon all these things just by being himself. He wasn't overthinking anything that he was doing. And that the whole idea of that movie, if you know it, like where he's, you know, he's just jogging and somebody hands him a shirt to like wipe his face and he wipes his face and hands it back. And it's the happy face thing, you know? And it's sort of like some people in in 12-step programs say, let go and let God right? Where you just allow whatever's going to happen to happen. I can't control it. And that's the big thing is control for her. And she has a grip around control very, very tightly. And she's just starting to show places where she can or has in the past loosened up, right? And that's, I I loved her going back and, and recounting the story of her playing music and being a bartender. And it's, I even recapped it Towards yeah, the end. Did. Yeah, little Sarah had like a shitty childhood and then teen Sarah was just having fun, giving no fucks. At some point early on for her, there were very severe consequences if you didn't do something perfectly or didn't do it right. So that's always in the not even back of her mind, sometimes forefront, but coming out of the cult and having these few years where she could do this stuff and just be free she wasn't thinking about consequences. You know, she even said it like, yeah, they weren't going to fire me. And I didn't care if they did. Whatever. You and I have said it before, Mayor, but the live your life and and take no shit and give no fucks. This is where that came from. This is what she was doing. And it's such a different place for her than that, oh, there's severe consequences. 
for me with anything that I do or my siblings do or anybody around me in the cult does. I need to be hyper vigilant all the time. And here's the other gear where she doesn't have to be. I mean, she's amazing. I can also see though, I mean, I think control's always been a huge thing for her. It sounds like those teen years were not out of control, but it was just like, all right, let's just see what happens. Well, yeah. And like I said, she was very free and she allowed herself to make mistakes. You snap back to where we are in the podcast time with her and she's looking at, oh yeah, my annual review and, and what's that going to look like? And that makes me very anxious and I don't like that. And, and we even said it in, in this session too, like I thought it was sort of the concept of good enough, right? And she's like, no, no, it's meets expectations. Yep. I hate I know. that. Like, oh, it made right, me right, laugh right. when I, I was right? like, oh yeah. It's there, but it's really nice to have a session with her and have her go into a time in her life when she didn't have that, when it was sort of in between being in the cult and being super controlled and abused, and then being in the real world with an ex-husband at the time was husband with two little kids and being very controlled again. And in between there was, oh, and here's Sarah just kind of allowing herself to experience life. It was interesting. I also threw in a little bit of balance. I don't know if you caught this, Mary, but when she said, she said it a couple of times that she was the, the world's worst bartender. And I said, yeah, you are also the best salesperson. And I just wanted to put that little piece in there so she doesn't hold the same narrative of failure and just show, right, there can be failure and success at the same time. Worst bartender, best salesperson. Yeah, I know. Right? I thought that was, I was like, oh, okay. Sometimes we say things on purpose as opposed to what we normally do in most of our lives, yeah. which is just wing it. Rarely. Sometimes. We say things. Yeah. Um, it's nice to say things again for you guys. Yeah. yeah. It's nice to say things with you, Meredith. Aww, I like nice that. to say things with you too, Dougie. Aw. And we will be back to say more things in a couple weeks. Podcast is going to be dropping every other week on here. And the weeks that we don't put an episode up on here, you can get an episode of Drew on the Patreon. And yes, that's right. We're plugging the Patreon. Go to patreon.com, search for your mental breakdown. You can see us and support us there. We very much appreciate it. Because we don't do ads, we don't do sponsors, we don't want to mess things up that way. So come find Until, us. Until, you know, they make us Until a huge we offer yeah, that we can. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Right, yeah. <laughs> but for now, come on back in a couple of weeks and check out Meredith on Revealing Your Secrets. Check me out. The podcast, the YouTube channel. Y'all can find it. You're pretty good with that stuff. And if not, feel free to drop us an email at info at yourmentalbreakdown.com. And we will be back with you in a couple weeks. Yay. Bye. Bye.